Hi, everybody, and welcome to Life TK, the podcast where we talk to women writers, editors, and journalists in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond about the jobs they did when they were in their 20s. My name is Amanda Woidis, and I'm your host. I am, I feel like I use the word excited too much, so I am jazzed, I am psyched, I am pumped. I am so, so happy about this interview. I got to talk on the phone to one of my favorite writers, Lori Natero. And you know the old saying that you should never meet your heroes because they might disappoint you? I got to talk to Lori, and I'm telling you right now, she's one of the funniest, smartest, kindest women. She was so generous with her time. It was a major moment for me. Lori's first book, The Idiot Girls Action Adventure Club, was also a first for me. It was the first humor essay collection I ever read. I had just graduated high school. A friend gave it to me. And you know those moments when you read something and it just really grabs you? That was Idiot Girls to College Freshman Amanda, reading it when I should have been paying attention in a geology lecture or something. This book was an extension of the humor column Lori was writing for a newspaper in Phoenix, and Lori really set the bar for future humor essay writers particularly of the misadventure crowd. I just remember being so in love with that book and thinking, where has this been all my life? It's so wonderful. I can't stop laughing. How do I find more of it? Luckily for me, Idiot Girls was a hit and a New York Times bestseller, and Lori has gone on to write more than a dozen books. Two of my other favorites are We Thought You Would Be Prettier and I Love Everybody and Other Atrocious Lies. Lori could teach a masterclass on titles, by the way. Her most recent book is called Crossing the Horizon, and it's a historical novel about three women aviators trying to be the first to cross the Atlantic. This was before Amelia Earhart and after Charles Lindbergh. It's so good. Please check it out. I wasted no time in embarrassing myself in front of one of my idols when I had to call Lori back because I wasn't sure if Tape Call was recording our combo. And then we jumped right into our mutual hatred of transcribing. So I was at work and I was transcribing and I was so bored that I fell asleep. Seriously, transcribing is the worst. And that is just a taste of the hilarious stories Lori is going to be sharing with me in this interview. Let's not waste any more time, faithful listeners. Let's find out what Lori was up to in her 20s. right away after high school I went to community college and still it just I I needed like a gap decade you know what I mean it was I I needed I really needed some I just wasn't ready to go to college so I um, moved out of my parents house and into a house with my boyfriend and I needed to get a job and I really wasn't qualified to do anything so I just answered an ad to be an optician and um, I ended up getting the job, and an optician fits people with eyeglasses. So okay. I was 20 years old, no experience fitting people with eyeglasses. I mean, I got somewhat, I got good training. I started off working at a department store, and there I did not get good training. Like, it was our our boss was a chain-smoking, pregnant person. <laughs> what? At who, the same time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think his name, she named him PJ. And so, and we worked in a really 
not a very good part of town. It was like on the west side of Phoenix, this place called Metro Center. When she was on, she was early on maternity leave, and she could not stop herself. She would keep coming in to work. Uh-huh. And so we'd be like, where's PJ? She's like, oh, my God, it's fine. He's in the car. I cracked the window. Seriously, <laughs> this is Arizona. She would leave her baby in the car. She would like leave her baby too. in the car. An infant, like a newborn, for like an yeah. hour. Oh, she would like to go through and make sure that we were doing everything right because she was so neurotic and like a micromanager, you know, just nuts. Her name yeah. was Diane. And she had this, she had a mullet and she had these big frosted glasses <laughs> that were like blue on top. You know, they're awesome. They're huge. What um, year was and this? So, this was 1985. Okay. Yeah, 85. Okay, we're only about three minutes into our phone call, and I'm already dying of laughter. PJ, if you're out there and if you're okay, can you please let us know? I'm super curious, and I also hope you're well. Shoot an email to amanda at lifetk.com. One day, this poor woman came in, and her name was Loretta, and she progressive lenses were, were brand new then, okay. and so the, the trifocals. And we had just learned how to do them. But, no, again, no one was really teaching us how to do it. It was Diane who was teaching us how to do this stuff. And she was really not very good. So we measured, me and my friend Stacy, like, measured. And we, like, double-checked our work to measure for Loretta's trifocals for her progressives. It was our first time doing it. And they're super expensive. So you had to get it right. So we, we measured them. We gave it to her. And there's an adjustment period. If you've had trifocals, you know that we don't get them right away. So she was like, I can't see out of these. We're like, no, you need to take them home and get used to them for a week. And she came back the week after, and she was just like, I can't get, I can't get used to these. We're just like, come on, Loretta, you really need to give it a shot. Please just try to get it done because we were not allowed to have the lenses made over because they were so expensive, and it would it would hit our margin levels, right? So if you had to make your lenses over, you'd be in massive trouble. So okay. next week she came in with a friend, and she was like, she was totally like 78, 79 years old. She was with an even older friend, and she was, she's, they're both these tiny little ladies like holding each other up and shuffling to the counter, and Loretta had a huge black eye, and so she had first fallen down the stairs. And um, then she, I guess she, and she thought, I just like, have to keep getting used to these. Oh, no. Sideswiped a um a citrus truck, oh, and all these oranges went flying out on the freeway because she couldn't see out of her glasses. <laughs> it was totally our fault. Completely our fault. We could have like really killed us. So at that point, I was like, "Yes, we will make you new glasses." And even those suck. So eventually, we just had to end up giving her her money back. And I just—it's one of the biggest things that hangs over my head, like in my life, is what I did to that poor woman. You know, oh, God, we could yeah. We could have killed her. So I did that for, um, I was an optician for, oh gosh, probably until like 1989. And then I actually, I worked for a private ophthalmologist for a while. And that was a really good job. story there is that whoever was like the last leaving the office, it was kind of like a, a chicken game. Whoever was last leaving the office had to make the deposit. Now, okay. I did not handle any money. Um, but it was it was the money that they would make from, and this is before actually even like. Well, I think we did take Visa cards, but it was when you still had to run them over that thing. 
Oh yeah, there was no electronic like terminal. Copy. You know, you had to yeah, it was yeah, you had to put the card in and 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 run it that way. Anyway, so it wasn't like I was I actually had any money with me, but this one night I was the last to leave the office, and Susan on her way out said, "Okay, you uh, you're tag you're it. You have to make the deposit." Because it was kind of out of the way, and you had to go and make it. And so, um, as I was, before I left, my mom called the office, and she's like, "Oh my God, your sister is in the hospital. She's having emergency surgery." So I did not. I just went straight to the hospital because she was in surgery, and it was crazy. And so I was out of work for a couple of days with her. And then um, I found the deposit, and I went and I made it like a couple of days later. So then the following week, um, the doctor. Was freaking out. He's like, oh my God, all this money's been stolen. It's been stolen. And uh, $20,000 is missing. And I was like, wow, that is insane. <laughs> totally crazy. So they call me in and they're just like, Lori, did did you make this deposit? And I was like, "I well, I don't know what deposit I made, but I, I did make one. Yeah. Um, and I made it a couple days late um, because my sister was, and usually there was like, seriously, like, a bunch of old people checks and like $18 in cash. There's like nothing yeah. in there. And so I made it. I made the deposit, whatever. What it turns out was that night that they gave me that money, there was $20,000. There's a $20,000 check in there that was supposed to cover one account to his investment account. And because it didn't, the money didn't get in there on time, all his investments bounced. <sighs> and I got fired for that. And they accused oh, me of stealing no. $20,000, which I was like, really? Why would I? $20,000, really? That's not even enough to live in Mexico for, like, three years. That's not Why would I do that? You know? Why wouldn't they have, so like, that was, just done it themselves? Like, why trust someone? Yeah, exactly. If you're going to give, a, like, a 19-year-old kid $20,000, you better friggin' say something, you know? Poor judgment on their part. Yeah, I agree. But he was pissed and somebody had to take the blame. However, that was the move that got me back to going to college. So um, so from there on out, I always worked at magazines and newspapers. I worked at the State Press, which was the um, Arizona State University's um, arts and culture magazine. And we came out once a week. And I was the editor for that for a while. And that's where I started writing my columns. Yeah, from there I went to a different magazine. I started another magazine after I graduated. And then I went to Tucson to work for a city magazine. And um when my editor there died, um it was just it was a shit show. So I came back up to Phoenix and started working for the Arizona Republic. And I was there for about five years. And at that time I had been sending idiot girls out over and over and over again. And finally, I put it out myself. I just I self-published it because so I was tired of rejection. It was a really long time. I had I did it with iUniverse. This is 2002, so it was print-on-demand. It's not even remotely the same machine that it is today. You know, self-publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, they have it down to a science. Back then, it really wasn't that. It was still it was a very new thing. Maxed out all my credit cards to advertise on Amazon for my book because you could do that at the time. Amazon was basically brand new. And an agent happened to see my book. She saw one of the ads and called me and just wanted to find out if I was for real. I wanted to find out if she was for real. And then we worked on the book prop. And in three days, we sold it. And that's how Idiot Girls came to be. Do you remember the moment when you found out that Random House was going to publish this book that you had been, like, working so yeah, I was at work. You were at work. work. It was yeah. yeah, I was at work. My agent called and she was just like, you know, and I we we thought 
it takes a while. It takes like a month. So don't freak out. Yeah. You know, it usually doesn't, it does not happen in three days. And so um, my agent was very excited and I was like, oh my God, it was awesome. You know, just because I had tried for so hard and I just, I'm tenacious, which is a blessing and a curse, whatever. Um, some people call it stalking. Some people call it <laughs> whatever you want to call it. But it was it was an amazing moment because I, I was able to, after all of that rejection, you know, it was like I, I, I got to the point where I was just like, okay, fine, I'll show you what I can do. I'll, I'll, yeah. I was, it became a, a point of contention that I got this book published. And when I did, it was a validation on so many different levels. Not only just the perseverance and the work for all that time, but just the, you know, it was just that I had done it. I wanted to take a minute to read you an excerpt from my favorite essay in Idiot Girls. It's about the time Lori and her friend Jamie go to a Page and Plant concert. Note that when I first read this book 11 years ago, I had to Google who those people were. College freshman Amanda didn't know who the members of Led Zeppelin are. Okay, so Lori and her friend Jamie are at this concert, and they notice a peculiar fellow. That's when we saw an odd little foreign man in green shorts and argyle socks trying to squeeze his way backstage. And after a couple of ill-fated efforts, he finally succeeded. He met up with a backstage guy who whispered to him. They both nodded and they started making gestures with their hands as if they were measuring something, like a block of ice, or a well-packed kilo of cocaine. The odd little man pulled out something from his back pocket and handed it to the backstage guy, and he took it. We couldn't believe our good fortune. We were witnessing what was possibly a celebrity drug deal, and we couldn't take our eyes off of it. We were hypnotized. Until the little guy looked up and saw us. She goes on, I got caught six more times, and the last time we were caught spying, the little guy was giving us a thumbs up. We, cordially, responded the greeting. Thumbs up. I play bongos, he yelled up to us. That's nice, we yelled back. I play bongos for Led Zeppelin, he insisted. Sure you do, I screamed back. And my dad's the singer. You can forget it. We're not going to have sex with you, little man. Okay, so they're at the concert. Lots of old drunk people. And then... That's when I noticed that Jimmy Page looked odd. He looked like my pop-pop dressed up in my Nana's clothes. But his face was wide, as wide as my butt. I was staring at his face when I saw another face jumping up behind him, smiling widely and happily. Thumbs up. Jesus, Jamie, I shouted. The drug dealer's on stage. The drug dealer is on stage, and he has a bongo drum in his hand. I know, she answered with a laugh, but your dad's having a little trouble with the high notes. And there he was, our odd little man, dancing, playing, and waving at everyone, singing along. If that doesn't make you want to read everything by Lori Natero, we cannot be friends. The mistake that I made was to tell, I was working at the newspaper at the point at that time. The mistake that I made was I, I, I did tell several of my friends who were really close to me, who had been with me for the last seven years, you know, encouraging me to get this book done. And that marked the end of my time at the Republic because there's nothing worse in the world than the jealous writer. And that's really been all I can, I, I can really boil it down to is that people were jealous that I got a book deal. And I mean, I guess that's fine, but the fact of the matter is that I didn't stop. You know, I just kept going yeah. and I sat down and I wrote a book. And these are all people who had always wanted to write books and never sat down to do it and never worked every single weekend and worked every single night, you know, and spent 
tons and hundreds of money on postage because that's how you had to mail that stuff in these days, in those days. You had to mail it, you know, and then wait six months for someone to get back to you. Yeah, you had to mail everything. You had to print it out. So it was quite an effort. It wasn't like emailing today where it's just, you know, like, bing, you're done. Right. Um, Anyway, and it just became – it became a, a a thing at the paper and I lost so many friends and it was crazy to me. It was very, very depressing. And um, eventually yeah. they fired me. What are you going to do? I mean, my column was the same column that I was right. I wrote for itty girls at the time I was getting more hits than sports was. I was, wow. I was, I was getting more hits than any of the other columnists and they still, they pulled my column. So it, that, you know, I, I will never be able to explain that. I don't know yeah. why they did it. But except that I went to college with, with my editor, and I think she was a little, yeah. Yeah. Was, what are you going to do? I don't know. Yeah. People were shitty. People were just shitty. And that was a oh, really, yeah. it was a hard but important lesson for me to learn about human nature, I guess. It kind of sucked. Yeah. So, and then then ever since then, I had just been writing books up until um, March when I went back to work. Um, how did you get the idea for Idiot Girls, like for your column? You know, it wasn't, I never set out to do that. I wanted to be a journalist. You know, I just yeah. wanted to, I wanted to be a reporter and I was, I, I like features. And so that's what I was at the, you know, the, the arts and culture magazine, which was fine. And I had a humor columnist, just in a nutshell, not to bore you. I had a humor columnist. He was involved in way too many things, always missing his deadline. And he was, the, he was in band. He was like the president of Students Against Drunk Drivers. He was in fashion shows. <laughs> And so he missed his deadline one too many times. And he called me and said, I can't get my stuff in today. And I was like, you have to, otherwise I'm firing you. He's like, you don't understand. I'm in prison for, or I'm in jail for drunk driving. So that was <laughs> awesome. I hated him. And so I fired him. And so um, I just, I, I just, I wrote a column that, that I just sat down and I wrote it like that day. I wrote it in like two hours just to fill the space. Yeah. And I knew that it was shitty, but it was just to fill the space. And then the next week I did the same thing because I hadn't found anybody. And the next week I did the same thing because I still hadn't found anybody. And then I, I, I got some letters from people who liked it, liked the stuff. And I just kind of kept doing it because I never really found somebody else to do it. So in, in the most gargantuan act of nepotism the world has ever seen, I gave myself my own column. And that's disgusting. So well, it took me on a completely different path than what I had expected. Did you always know you were a writer? even when you were, like, working for the optometrist? Well, I mean, I, writing always came very easy to me, but I didn't really want to be a writer. I mean, I did when I was little, and then when I was in my 20s, I was like, oh, I want to be an artist. But I really stuck yeah. at art. And my father, thank God, had no bones about telling me how bad the guy sucked. So he's like, and that's what he said. He's like, ah, uh, yeah, I'm not paying for you to go to college and be an artist because you are not very good. <laughs> So he's like, if you if you want to go back to college, you have to do English or journalism. That's that's those are your choices. I was like, all right, fine, I'll I'll do that. So that's what I did. It took me a long time to get through school. It took me, you know, I got an associate's degree and then to finish up at ASU took me like I don't know, like six more years. So it was kind of crazy. That's okay. I was in school for a really long time. What is the biggest lesson you learned? Oh, the biggest lesson I yeah I learned was um, not necessarily in my twenties. Do you want you do, does it be twenties? Have to be overall, whatever you feel like. In my twenties, I guess the 
the biggest lesson I learned was, was, yeah, I mean, because I was working a lot at the paper, I got really good at making my deadlines. And I learned a lot. That's when we were first paginating newspapers. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot of computer stuff where other people who were journalists did not because I was producing the newspaper. I learned how to do all that stuff. Like I learned cork and pagination is what they called it, which is crazy. The biggest lesson I learned overall was what I was telling you about, about the newspaper. That came as such a shock to me when um, one by one my my colleagues that I had and the people I'd gone to college with just dropped off. And it was people and people just started making stuff up about me. And so eventually I just got sick of it. So I moved to Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the lessons, like, thankfully, I learned pretty early on is like when you surround yourself with people who are really talented and like doing cool things, just lifts you up and inspires you and like gives you a bunch of cool ideas too. Like I never really understood how people could, you know, like you feel jealousy when someone does something really cool, but like that doesn't mean you destroy their lives. Act on it. No. You like find your own thing. Yeah, exactly. Jealousy should motivate you as opposed to make you strike out and take it out on the person that you're jealous of. You know, I mean, yeah. certainly, and and there have been times that I've had to recognize my own jealousy, and that's not easy. That's yeah. like, oh, I'm thinking these terrible thoughts about that person because I'm jealous of them. I'm jealous that they got to do this. I'm jealous that they accomplished that, but there is nothing stopping me from doing the same thing. You know, I just have to apply myself. This is one of the biggest lessons I've learned this year is that you just have to do things and not worry about what's been done before or what's been done better. You're going to hear this a lot on the podcast, and it's because it's true. Your 20s, not the time for Netflix and brunch and naps. You can sleep when you're dead. Your 20s, time to just go for it and do every project you've always wanted to do. In, in, in publishing, it's a little bit more unfair than that because it's all a matter of timing. And sometimes good books don't do very well, and sometimes shitty books do great. And it's yeah. a, a very unfair culture. But again, it's nothing should nothing should weigh you down so much that you stop doing what you love. Yeah. You just go back and you do it again. The best lesson of, of my 20s was that and, and being tenacious and sticking with what it was that I wanted to accomplish and, and, re, and just going after it year after year after year. And I ended up getting pretty thick skin because of it. One of the other women I talked to, she also, it only takes one person to say like, oh, I don't know, like, maybe that's not such a good idea for her to, like, it just, like, fires her up and, like, whatever. Oh, yeah. 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 I think some yeah. people you are like Yeah, you tell me that. no. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the word no is, like, jet fuel to me. Yeah. Like, tell me I can't do something, and I will make you watch me do it. My husband likes to tell me no, but I don't think he realizes that if he says, like, oh, I don't really think that's a good idea. I'm like, it's a great idea. It's the most brilliant idea. <laughs> I'm going to do it, like, you just watch. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It totally works. Exactly. It's interesting what you said about timing and publishing. I, that's been also, like, a theme in this project, or people are just like, you know what, It was I got lucky. And it's like, oh, it's so great for you, but it's so sobering to think of, like, all of the other people who don't get lucky. Well, I think that's... It's true, but at the same time, I think that if you if you stop, if you quit, then yeah. you will never know if your time comes or not. 
you know, but if you keep going, you just, you never know when you're going to be at the right time, the right place. Like, for instance, um, in Tempe, I knew two guys who were in two different bands. One band, they're both good. One band was fucking kick ass. Yeah. And he was the best, one of the best musicians ever in that town. And I, he was just, he was brilliant. Um, the other band was more pop, more jangly. They got a platinum record eventually. And mm-hmm. the other band, the one who was really, really good, um, never got anything. They yeah. never went anywhere. So talent doesn't always mean that you're going to get someplace. But also, there was a time when that person kind of stopped and pulled himself in so and, and, and inhibited his own progress, I would guess. So I think talent is great, but you also have to to pair that with an obscene amount of determination. Like so yeah. much is gross. I think that's like also hard for women because you have, or at least I do, and I feel like other women feel this way too. You feel like, oh, I, I can't like brag about myself. I can't like ask for what I want. I just feel like that's a gendered thing. Yeah, I, I yeah. agree with you. It has everything to do with you being polite and, mm-hmm. you know, but it, there there are some things where... And I agree. Like right now I'm trying to get a, a different job at work. And yeah. so I have come up to them and said, okay, this is what I can do. And it's, it's met with like blah, blah, blah. And so finally I'm like, okay, fine. I'll show you what I can do. You don't believe me just by telling you that's totally, I get it. But I will show you now what I can do. Tomorrow, literally, my first really, really like big story is due. And I made a video with it, which I know sounds dumb, but it actually turned out kind of cool. So, um, and I'll say here, this is, this is what I can do. So now you know. Whatever. Hopefully, hopefully they'll like it. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. There's also a culture, especially the corporate workplace, where it's like if you want a job that's like a, even like slightly different than what you do now, impossible for anyone to hire you. Like you can only get jobs doing yeah the exact same mm-hmm. thing. No, I agree. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be like people would, would were eager to teach you something new or take your enthusiasm and be like, yeah, I think you're the right kind of person for this job. And it didn't really yeah. have to do too much with your pre-existing skill set. But it was right. like, I believe this person. I get along with this person. I get a good energy from you. Um, and now you're right. These When you read a job description, it's so detailed. It's like, yeah. must be born on July 16th. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's just, it's like yeah. insane. Like sometimes it gets like so detailed. It's like, seriously, who are you looking for? You clearly have someone in mind and whether or not they exist is who knows. Yeah, it's kind of a miracle that like anyone gets hired these days to me. Also that people get promotions. I don't know. Promotions are a myth. I've never known like anyone who's gotten one. Maybe that's just a public yeah, thing too. I don't think I've ever gotten a promotion in my life. That's my life goal is to just get like a promotion. I got promoted actually on our floor as volunteer fire searchers. So if there's a fire, I go into the bathroom oh and like, tell people to leave. And I recently, the week before I found out that Food and Wine was moving, I got promoted to volunteer fire warden. And then actually, no, sorry, you like can't. <laughs> so that's like the one promotion I've ever received. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm like really intense about fire safety. Yeah, I'm really intense. <laughs> that was awesome. I should explain this a little better. So I work full-time at a magazine in New York City, and our parent company recently decided to move the magazine's operations to another state. So the week after I got my quote-unquote promotion to volunteer fire warden, 
I suddenly found myself without a job. This project sort of a sick twist, huh? My life actually is TK. I was curious if you have any career advice for like young women today. Yeah, I think I have a couple of different things. Is that it's not even women in their 20s. I deal with, I work with women in their 40s and 50s. Some of them take it so personally, like when, how do I put this? Like when, when, when a story gets taken away from them or something like that. And yeah, that totally sucks. But this is what I've told them. I'm just like, why are you bleeding for, why are you bleeding for the university? Don't bleed for the university. You need to bleed for your own work, which is what you do at nighttime, what you do on the weekends. You're just here to do a job and realize that this is your job. This is this is what I told my friend Melody yesterday. I said, no one is ever, after you die, no one's ever going to say, God, Melody was always on time. Melody yeah. always, you know, she always clocked out at 5 o'clock and she was always on time and she always made her deadlines. She was awesome. People are never going to say that, you know. So you yeah. have to do good work. I'm not saying, saying don't good. You always do your best work. But bleed for what matters and don't bleed for somebody else who doesn't care if you're bleeding. <laughs> somebody always has their own work that they're working on, you know. Most people do, especially writers. You have your own thing that you're working on. Bleed for that. Focus on yeah. that. Give that your all. I would say when you're when you're in your 20s, you side hustle all you can. Before yeah. you have kids, before you have a house to take care of, get your stuff done. I think that's super important. I took a minute here to ask Lori about the popular phrase side hustle. One of my friends thinks, and I sort of think it too, but I feel conflicted, but that women should stop side hustling because the only reason we do it is because we're underpaid at work. I agree that, yes, it's not fair to say, hey, I'm not compensated well, so instead of asking for a raise, I'm going to do a bunch of freelance work. However, I am paid what I think is a fair salary, well, you know, while I still have a job, and I'm still out there working seven days a week. Why? Well, I like money, and I also believe that to grow professionally, you have to seek out the skills you want to learn and that are going to launch you into that next phase of your career, and oftentimes that means looking outside your nine-to-five. And sometimes you do that and you find the great fulfilling work of your soul. And sometimes you realize that you just like being in charge of the projects you take on or you like to make your own schedule or something like that. I could talk about this forever, but back to Lori. Do you have any writing advice for young women today? Don't ever try to emulate somebody else and write what you want to write. Write what comes from you mm -hmm. and don't. It's, it's got to be a natural thing. And also, I, I have to be honest and say that I'm not a big fan of workshopping. This is what I, I learned at a very young age is that, and maybe it probably happened at some point, but if I get called out on a bullshit line or a bullshit quote or a bullshit piece of writing, it better fucking be my writing. You know what I mean? It better be yeah. my idea. So there, and that is, I'm, I'm more than willing to fail. On, mm -hmm. on myself, but I don't want someone else's failure to, to influence me because I was so insecure about my own work that I took advice that probably wasn't very good. You know, it's, it's, if you take something and you, you really believe in it, okay, that's fine. You know, but if you, you, you take something that you're not really sure and, and you're being insecure about your work, then that is not going to ever do you any favors. I would always say, yeah, stick, stick by your work because your name's on it. And, don't give up. You just never give up. And, and, you know, until you just can't take it anymore, I suppose. The publishing industry has kicked the living shit out of me. And I'm still not done. 
And yeah. they've done that more than once. They have kicked the shit out of me way more than once. And this time it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad after Crossing came out. And so, but I'm, I'm still, you know, I went back to work. I have a fun job and I'm still writing in my job, which is fine, but I'm still working on my stuff on the weekends. Yeah. I'm no longer a full-time writer anymore. And that kind of sucks. Security of having a paycheck kind of overrides the suckiness of the other stuff for right now. And there are things I super want to do. Like I have, there, I've got four books planned out that I really want to write. And I, I may just have to write them and publish them myself. That may, is, yeah. that may end up being what it is because with publishing now, I've been told over and over again, unless you're a celebrity or it's a surefire hit, we are not buying your book. Really? So, yeah. and that's daunting. That's really daunting. And that is and when you have, um, Random House who, and believe me, they're my, you know, they were my publisher, but they've eaten up publisher after publisher after publisher until there's, you know, not even Penguin is on its own anymore. So you really are kind of, you're working with a, this machine that has like this one lead engine, yeah. you know what I mean? And there's, yeah. there's not a lot of other outlets. And so the margins are getting smaller and, I I worry about what that means for literature as far as um, new authors go. You really have to take a chance on new authors. And mm -hmm. if you can't pay new authors a decent amount, because um, writers make shit. They don't make, you know, very much at all. You know, you may get yeah. a, a pretty healthy advance when you realize you've got to live on that for five years. Yeah, It's daunting. Yeah. yeah. You get hungry. So I don't know, maybe this is a good reset for me is to just kind of take it. I've taken some time off of writing and I've been able to come up with some um, really strategic ideas, I think, with plots and structure that I I never had time to really think of before because I was always working on something, you know. So maybe yeah. this is good for me that I've got some downtime and that I'm writing about um, things that are going on at the university. Are you reading anything right now that you're really excited about? One of the best books that I've read was just a little while ago, and that was The Enchanted by Renee Denfeld, and that's one of the best books I've ever read in my life. It was amazing. She's an amazing, amazing writer. And it's a, re it's a hard book. Yeah, it's, it's one of those books that got a lot of critical acclaim, which are, are my favorites. It's like finding that one candy in the box that you really want. You know what I mean? That yeah. no one else, everybody else overlooked. But it's such, it's such a, it's beautifully written and she just, she's from Portland and of course now I've made friends with her so I really, I super like her. But um, I didn't know her when I read this book and it just turned awesome. out we had mutual friends. But it's, it's a book about death row and in real life she's a death row investigator um, and that's what this character plays. So I think it's probably pretty autobiographical for her, although she won't say. But it's about men on death row and the beast that they are and what kind of goes on there. And it's but it's a it's a beautifully written piece of literature. It's not it's not commercial fiction. It's not, you know, genre fiction. It is it's literature and it is an amazing, amazing book. OK, I'm wrapping up the interview here and I've got one more question for Lori. And her answer is probably my favorite thing in the world. What would you tell yourself when you felt like quitting? I wanted to kick the shit out of people and I wanted to punch them in the fucking face. But I never yeah. I never felt like quitting. Never. This is something that is, is such a part of my life and it's such mm -hmm. a um well, there is I I have come to the conclusion that I probably was not gonna write humor anymore. 
only because the market was so saturated. And strategically and financially, it made more sense for me to go into a, a different genre because the genre that I helped create back 16 years ago was so flooded now with mediocre humorous um, that it was hard to even break through, even somebody who had an established name. So anyway, I figured I would just take a break off and from humor, and then Random House came back and said, well, we write Housebroken. And I was like, yeah, because I needed the money. But it was, yeah. it was, a, it was, yeah, it was a good, good book, I think. I'm not sure if it's my best book, but it was a good book. Lori's being modest here. It's a really good book. And actually, it contains a very life TK chapter called Dear Lori, age 25. She's writing a letter to herself in her 20s. She says, you're going to get fired more than once, more than three times, more than seven times. So far, you have been fired nine times, which is a lot for anyone. Sometimes it will be sucky, but other times it will be quite joyful. There is always unemployment, and who doesn't need a job sabbatical? Put aside the cursing oils and spells, because if there's one person who can do their job exquisitely well, it's karma. To date, every single person who has ever fired you has subsequently lost his or her job too, except for two of them, but there is still time. If people in your life are important to you, let them know. And not just when you're drunk. In fact, never when you're drunk. The only thing you get to do when you're drunk is laugh. Otherwise, you might end up on a picnic table in a park somewhere, and that is gross and hoary. What I mean is never hesitate to tell a friend how much you miss them, even if you haven't seen them for a while. If you think someone is awesome, make sure they know. That's great advice. But yeah, there is never a time that I wanted to quit because people made me feel that way. I always have the opposite reaction, you know. I want to go charging back in, so I would not be a very good fire marshal. <laughs> I think you would. I think we would make a really good team. <laughs> I'm top, I'm top dog. I'm top dog. Okay, I get it. I'll be a little dog. Fine. <laughs> I want to thank Lori so much for talking to me. It was really amazing. I learned so much. I laughed so much. I can't wait until we start our own fire safety consulting business. We're going to make a really dynamic duo. Anyway, check out all of Lori's books, Every Last One. That's an order. One more order, head over to lifetk.com to sign up for my newsletter, which I'm going to be using as a roundup of news articles about women in the workplace and writing you should be reading. Also, follow me on Instagram at life underscore TK and on Twitter at lifetkpodcast. On lifetk.com, you can also find under the support page a link to my Patreon. Patreon is a donation platform that makes it easy for people to fund the projects they love. And I'm using my Patreon to raise money so I can start the search for an intern. That's right, I need some help with Life TK. I want to give one young woman the internship of her dreams. I promise I'll be a good boss. And right now I'm running a giveaway. Go to lifetk.com, under support, find my Patreon link, donate there, Email me at amanda at lifetk.com with your contact info and mailing address, and you'll be entered to win one of Lee Stein's signed books, either Land of Enchantment or Dispatch from the Future. Signed, y'all. Signed. I want to give a shout out to my dear friend Molly Harbarger, who works at The Oregonian and was my first Patreon, well, patron. Here's how boss Molly is. She's a Livingston Award finalist this year. That's a big deal award. 
for her story titled Decrepit Fish Camps Built on Broken Promises. You can find it on OregonLive.com, and it's a really great piece of journalism. It's about how the government wiped out settlements from four Native American tribes to build dams along the Columbia River and then replaced those settlements with camps. Imagine if your home were a camp. Okay, again, read that on OregonLive.com. I believe Molly turns 30 this fall, which means I only have to wait a few more months until I can ask to interview her for this podcast. I can't wait. Thanks, Molly. Love you. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for listening.